Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Hope you survived the snow. You're looking out your window with a nice cup of coffee. And your sidewalk is shoveled. Your driveway is plowed and clear. The streets are good. And you've survived the first Minnesota metro area snow. Of course, northern Minnesota got that snow last week. And southern Minnesota got it this week. This is Sunday Tech. I'm Blois Olson. Uh, This week's take includes... Senator Amy Klobuchar on Instagram and the hearings of last week. MMB Commissioner Jim Showalter on the $7.7 billion budget surplus. And Public Records Media, Matt Elling, on trying to get info, emails, and where we stand on data requests from Minnesota's Governor Tim Walz. You know, it is the season of the holidays. And despite the $7.7 billion surplus, polarization doesn't seem to have gone away. And in fact, that surplus is going to last a while, just as the debate is. The debate's going to go through next governor's race. Just brace yourselves. The other major issue that we continue to live with every day is crime. And, you know, it is not good. And Minneapolis has long been safer than most major metropolitan areas. But what seems to be missing is just some sort of plan, some sort of acknowledgement that we need to do something different. We've needed to do something different for a long time on prisons and jails. But right now with crime like this, it's going to be hard to fix things, especially during an election year. So I hope you get a fresh cup of coffee. You're ready for the show. It's Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO, and I'm your host, Blois Olson. We'll be right back. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. 
Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Sunday Take. One of the issues that probably doesn't get a lot of coverage, but within kind of the bubble of those in the media and those activists who cover uh, politics uh, is transparency. And one of the kind of ongoing issues on transparency is indeed access to emails of public officials. Minnesota has different rules depending on if you're in the legislature or you're in the executive branch. And it's become an issue because of, frankly, a lot of interest in the dialogue and nature of uh, email during uh, the COVID pandemic, especially the first few months with the governor's office and the administration. And so joining me now is uh, Matt Elling of Public Record Media. Matt, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks a lot, boys. Matt, let's just start with what is Public Record Media? Where uh, where are you located? How do you work? Um, because I think you not a lot of people know about who you are, but you do some important work. Yeah, but thanks for the interest. Uh, we've been around for about a dozen years. Um, so my background is in uh, communications and television production. That's my day job. And then I have a volunteer um, side job, if you will, um, and that's public record media. So I started uh, this. It's a nonprofit organization. We're located in St. Paul, and it's basically all volunteer except for when we have to hire uh, legal help or IT help. Uh, but it's all volunteer board of directors, uh, a lot of uh, uh, former journalists, uh, a couple attorneys, um, somebody who's on our board who we actually met um, helping her out doing data practices requests. Uh, and uh, she does a lot of them and wanted to join our board. So it's people that care about uh, getting access to government records. And uh, what we do is we make data requests uh, to state and federal agencies and then publish the results. Uh, Mike Kazuba, who's our editor, who used to be with the Strib. Till he retired, uh, he writes stories about that stuff. And then we occasionally uh, go to court to uh, litigate, to get access to stuff that's being withheld by the government. So I think that's one key point is that it is a volunteer-driven organization. You don't, as I know it, and I'd love for you to verify, you don't receive funding from groups with agendas or, um, you know, from the right or from the left, or there's not a partisan or a political drive to the organization. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, we are explicitly nonpartisan and uh, we try to fill uh, a void, um, uh, which is basically trying to make sure that no matter who's in power, uh, Democrat, Republican, um, we want to make sure that the public records laws are being applied to that uh, administration or organization or government entity uh, equally so that people can have uh, equal access to understand what their government's doing. Matt Elling's my guest. We're talking about access to public records, specifically public record media based in St. Paul, a volunteer driven organization has been inquiring and filing data practices requests on the governor's office. Matt, bring us up to speed on kind of where, what the nature of the request has been and what you've run into over time with those kinds of uh, requests from the governor's office. Oh, sure. Well, you know, like I said, going back uh, a dozen years now, we've done this with uh, multiple administrations. Um, this is the first large, uh, larger data request we've made to the Walls administration. Made a couple smaller requests to the governor's office before. Um, but, the, you know, as 
folks are aware there's been a lot that's happened um, sort of historically within the last couple of years, both the COVID pandemic and the, the rioting within the Twin Cities. So a lot of issues uh, that have sparked public interest. So we were interested to kind of uh, take a look at the decision-making going on uh, during those periods of time. So we made a request to the governor's office for uh, three discrete blocks of time, two-week periods each, um, uh, around major events, the initial COVID lockdowns, uh, the riots, et cetera, um, just to see what uh, what kind of decision-making we could get uh, our, our hands on to kind of enter into the public record, see what was happening beside, behind the scenes. Um, and we had uh, received information that um, the governor's office uses a couple different email accounts. Um, there's the uh, Tim.Walls standard uh, email account um, that's we've seen out there in the public record. Um, and we also um, found out that there was a Tim.Mankato account um, that mm -hmm. the governor's office was using. So we asked for emails from both of those accounts. Um, and uh, we didn't hear anything back for quite a few months, or at least not anything substantive. They, they acknowledged that they'd received the request. Um, we asked them to confirm that they'd been saving uh, data from both of those email accounts. Didn't hear anything back um, by no, you know, early November of this year. Um, and so then we basically held a press conference because we we'd, we know that other people within the uh, press community um, have been kind of having issues with slow data production from that office. And yeah. uh, we just kind of put it out there to the to the, uh, the the sort of general press community and, and the governor's office saying, look, you know, let's let's uh, have an update on on what your policies are with regard to this request and also in general. And so um, then they told us they'd get back to us in two to four weeks. And we just got some data uh, a couple days ago. Got it. It's, and and I know you're probably looking through that data, but did you find it, and I had asked the governor a couple of weeks ago when I interviewed him about the different email addresses. Have you gotten an answer on why there are two email addresses or what the nature of how those different email addresses are used by the governor's office? Yeah, we've, we've put that question to their communications staff um, and we're waiting for a full, a full answer. Um, they've given a couple responses out there in the, in the press. I know they told the Minnesota reformer that um, the Tim.Walls email is sort of their uh, general email for intake, but they don't use it for uh, internal correspondence. Um, and they say that the Tim.Mankato email address is the one they use for internal correspondence. What, what's interesting about the data that we got um, recently, the, the 331 pages that the governor's office produced, is that the, the governor seems to be copied on things, but almost never responds to anything. There was just yeah. one email where he, he responded good to a press release that had been put together. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a lot of communication from the governor, um, at least in the email production that we have. And, you know, the governor, you know, kind of referenced that to me and, you know, based on kind of reading his answer and understanding what he was trying to say was that he intentionally doesn't respond to a lot of email, that, that he takes queries and then maybe picks up the phone or he's on a zoom during a pandemic um we've talked a lot about email what about those i mean you know pre-pandemic internal conversations obviously were tough to collect but now that there's a potential that things were recorded is there any part of state law that would make those available and how does state law work on you know not just email but all kind of correspondence is is it is it just driven by email or 
you know, if somebody writes a memo, prints it and hands it to somebody, uh, that might be a way that you don't necessarily know it happened. So how does the law apply to the executive branch? Oh, sure. So our uh, legislature was um, uh, looking down the road pretty far back in the 1970s when they crafted our public records law. So our law is called the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act, and they specifically um, made it apply to any data uh, that existed um, that had been produced by a government entity. And all that stuff is presumed to be public uh, unless there's a a law that says this portion of it uh, is not public for whatever reason. So uh, certain security-related data is not public, for instance. But it doesn't matter if that data is email or a piece of paper uh, or a, a video conference file. Um, it's all government data. Then there's a second law that's called the records retention statute, and that governs how long you got to keep stuff for. So, you know, emails and video conferencing and, you know, memos on paper, they all have retention schedules. So it really comes down to, uh, is there uh, a retention schedule that governs how long the thing has to be around? And, um, and how long is that? And in, you know, does public record media, your group have an opinion on how long that it should be or shouldn't be? And do we have anything like the archives, like in the federal government, uh, they have archives and people give things to the archives, which then makes it obviously available forever. Uh, right. Yeah. To the second part of your question, uh, there is a state archives and uh, that interfaces with that records retention law. So that records retention law basically says, you know, there's certain things uh, that are on a recommended schedule for retention. So uh, email in a lot of uh, counties and cities, for instance, the recommended retention is three years. Uh, but then for certain official records, uh, like an email that documents a partic- how, like a particular decision that was made on this date, that is official uh, and affects people in a, in a tangible way. That's an official record that for the most part has to be retained for a pretty long time. Um, and a lot of those records uh, then get transferred to uh, the state archives um, at a certain point. Now the state archives, you know, they're the, the, the tough thing about this records retention business is that unlike the data practices act, where you've got a right to go get the, the information and you can sue if the government doesn't get it to you, um, it's harder to sue um, necessarily under the Official Records Act for uh, a government agency throwing something out too early. Um, there's there's a couple. I won't get into the weeds too much on that, but generally that's been that's been harder. So that's kind of the conundrum people are in sometimes. Matt Ellings, my guest from Public Record Media, we're talking about this idea of the governor's emails, getting them, and uh, you know we've uh, and we'll be sharing later this week got a list of all the requests of the governor's office since he was inaugurated, who they were by and how long they've taken. Uh, and that'll be featured in Morning Take tomorrow uh, on Monday. Um, Matt, one of the things uh, is the legislature has different rules. Does public record media have a position on what the best standard should be on access to this, keeping things? Um and what should be open on in other branches of government? Yeah, I mean, our, our general, um, and we're not a policy advocacy organization. Right. I, for full disclosure, I'm, I sit on the board of another separate organization called the Minnesota Coalition on Government Information that is more involved in data policy issues. Um, but as far as public record media goes, you know, we 
we think there's a great value in, in having um, information about government decision-making available to the public, um, having it around for a reasonable amount of time um, so that people can see what's happened. Um, that's that's why, for instance, we went to, to state court um, to litigate over access to the state's um, bid that it put in for Amazon's second corporate headquarters. Um, because we, we even though the state didn't uh, get that, it was still important, we thought, for the taxpayers to see what they were potentially on the hook for, for that or for future deals. So that kind of access, uh, we think, is important. Makes sense. Matt Elling uh, from Public Record Media. Uh, do you anticipate that you'll get kind of the answers or the emails that you believe are out there? And do you believe, do you have reason to believe that you haven't been provided emails that you know already exist? Well, the the issue that we're uh, confronting now with the email production that we got from the governor's office is, you know, we put it in for two purposes. One was to see the historical record about what was happening uh, and also to figure out how these two different email accounts were being used. Uh, and it's really difficult to do that if you can't see the uh, the email addresses in those right. emails that they've that they've produced. Um, but they they gave us essentially a production of 331 pages with all of the email address information redacted. So you can't tell if it's the Tim.Mankato account that's being used or the Tim.Walls account that's being used. So we've asked them to revisit that because that that information is is public. Um, the the email address of a government official in Minnesota is public information. So that needs to be produced to us. Sounds great. Tim uh, Elling, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. When we come back, Senator Amy Klobuchar will join us for a conversation about hearings she held this last week on Instagram, what she expects to come from them, and more. Here on News Talk 830 WCCO, this is Sunday Take. Welcome back to uh, Sunday Take. We've had the snow. It was a busy week. But one of the big stories that's going to shape a discussion politically, policy-wise for months, if not the next 11 months, is news that Minnesota has a $7.7 billion budget surplus. And joining me now is MMB Commissioner Jim Showalter. Jim, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Blaise. So you've been around a few of these surpluses, a few of these shortfalls. When, when the outside forecasters and the experts sit around and they give you the number, what was your immediate reaction or did you kind of have an idea it might be in that range based on collections and federal assistance? Uh, both are true. You know, I, I knew we were collecting a lot more than we had been previously. That, you know, the summer months, even the, some of the spring months, we yep. were seeing variations that were way bigger. So it would be hard not to have a big surplus. Got it. Um, still, expecting it and having it are two different things. So it it, it is still kind of, one of those moments you say, wow, that is reality. Here we go. Some of us watch the whole presentation. Some of us dive into the documents. But for those people listening, what really contributed to this? What were the main factors that give us this surplus today? Now, this, this forecast really has a, a number of different factors in it. And the key one is really that the economy and now, all Minnesotans are just starting to figure out how to deal with this pandemic environment that the economy and our jobs, um, our, our businesses are figuring out how to keep things going. And while we've been doing that, we've still been going out and spending. You know, overall, a lot of uh, people are still able to maintain their incomes. 
And uh, large corporations across the country uh, have still been able to make pretty uh, good bottom lines. And those all lead very directly to the state's tax revenue. So starting around May, April, May of this year, we started seeing really big variations off of what we've been expecting for tax collections. And we, you know, we anticipate that's not gonna recede significantly. We're gonna be a lot closer to where we were a year or two ago. So um, those tax collections, all of it kind of comes together. It is a forecast, just like the weather on Friday was a forecast. And some people receive 10 inches of snow and some people receive five inches of snow. From your experience, um, when legislators ask, when the governor asks, where, you know, there's the political chatter, but where is the sensible, you know, I might make extra money next year, but I'm not going to spend it you know, in the business before, you know, it's coming in. Where do you give, where does your experience tell you that, um, you know, either the priorities should be or the considerations for spending or cuts um, are most, you know, should be most thoughtful? You know, I, there's a couple of different ways of thinking about it. And I think the easiest is we already have about $3.1 billion in the bank. That's money from the last fiscal year that we didn't expect to have. And so that's you know, like the safest uh, part of the forecast. So we still expect you know, an additional $4 billion in this upcoming two-year period. But given that that $3 billion came in in the last, say, six months or so, you, know, you, know, you can see that there's, it's, not, it's risky, but it's not as risky as you like guessing whether it's gonna snow on Monday. Um, it, it's, it's closer, it's, it's uh, uh, more relevant. So those are the, the money in the bank is probably the easiest way of knowing, yeah, we've got a good head start and we can certainly make some concrete plans right now and we'll keep monitoring it. That's what Minnesotans do. We keep looking out the window to see if it's going to snow, but the weather's coming. Um, and we, we keep doing that on the forecast as well. My guest is Jim Showalter. He's the MMB commissioner, management uh, and budget. Minnesota had a $7.7 billion budget forecast a surplus in that forecast. Jim, um, one of the things that I don't know, um, you know, we don't, we don't budget with inflation. We don't forecast with inflation. Inflation is at, inflation is at an all-time high. We learned on Friday, uh, or not an all-time, but high in you, your lifetime and mine, let's just say as adults. Uh, what does that mean for this? Because, you know, I like to tell people, when your energy costs go up, the school district's energy costs go up. When your uh, costs rise on fuel, then MnDOT's prices on fuel rise. How do you how do you look at this inflationary uh, place we're at and this forecast? Yeah, hey, you know, inflation is one of the concerns, one of those issues we highlighted, and we'll be looking at because it's a risk. It's a and it's going to have a real impact on what you really get for your budget. You know. For the next couple of years, Blaise, yeah, we don't include inflation. It's a current law forecast. And so appropriations have been set. So appropriate that inflation will take a bite out of what we can really do with those appropriations. So you know, that's the immediate issue. The longer term issue is, well, you know, if inflation continues, that means that revenues will go up and our numbers will look really healthy because our spending is pretty much, you know, doesn't get inflated. So 
you know, we take those long-term projections with a grain of salt, knowing that, you know, more than a billion dollars of our planning estimates is really just due to inflation, not being in the forecast on spending. Jim Showalter, thanks for joining me today on Sunday Take, and hopefully people understand this forecast a little more, and they can get away from kind of the babble and the bluster of headlines and press releases, because that will dominate probably the next four or 11 months as we go. Thanks again. Thanks, Blaise. Welcome back to Sunday Take. I'm Blaise Olson. For the final cup of coffee this morning, uh, now that we've gotten real snow in Minnesota, uh, none other than Senator Amy Klobuchar, who has made more uh, buzz out of political snow than anyone else in the history (laughs) of the world when she announced. So, Senator Klobuchar, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks, boys. Someone actually gave me, I have it in my office. I'm looking at it now for Christmas, a, a picture of me doing that announcement in a perpetual snow globe. That's so awesome. Have that, which is very fitting for all the snow in Minnesota. But thanks for having me on. No problem. So this past week, uh, one topic uh, that got a lot of attention that you've been very focused on for a while is tech companies, social media companies, but specifically this week, Instagram and Instagram CEO. Why don't you just let us know kind of what the purpose of the hearing was and what you took away from the hearing? One of the outcomes of having no rules of the road in place on tech companies, really, since we got the internet, um, is that it's having a lot of negative repercussions on certain people. And Uh, We know that from all of the polarization in our politics and how certain people just read some stuff, other people read some stuff. But what we really know it is with our kids. Many, many parents have talked to me about their kids getting hooked on just reading these platforms all the time. Um, And in fact, the more and more stuff that's come out from the Facebook whistleblower and the documents we've seen now, we know that Facebook that owns Instagram, of course, their name is now Meta owns Instagram. They changed their name in the middle of all this, which was rather amusing. They they own Instagram. And what we know is that Instagram has greatly increased its budget and that we have executives actually saying um, on the record in documents that they viewed it as an existential threat if they started to lose teen users. So the marketing goal here on their part is diametrically opposed to parents' goals because what they want (laughs) is more kids on for a longer time, seeing more content so that they can see the ads. And the difference between this and TV, and there is a difference, is that, you know, parents can usually see what their kids are watching on TV. Um, And there's rules about what kind of programs are on certain shows. This thing is the Wild West because kids are getting exposed to all kinds of bad content. Uh, One of my colleagues actually did set up an account to see what would happen of a kid just looking for research on nutrition. And they end up getting things like, I have to be thin and eternally starved. This stuff keeps popping up as links. Uh, one mom told me she felt like she was uh, behind a, next to a big sink that kept overflowing. The faucet wouldn't go off and she tries to figure out how to shut down links on her kids or add more filters. And she's sitting out there with a mop just by herself trying to clean it all up. So my point with the CEO is you run one of the most, the the richest companies in the world, Meta, Facebook is, and this guy runs Instagram that's owned by them. Um, and you tell me you don't have the technology to help these parents 
um, so that these kids don't see this stuff and that when they're too young, they're not even on your platform. Come on, they can do this. They don't want to. Talking to Senator Amy Klobuchar, she uh, was a key part of a hearing this past week on Instagram specifically. Senator, uh, critics will say, you know, it's up to parents to do this. And you, you reference this parent in the mop. I, I'm a parent. I have two teenagers. You've met them before they were teenagers. But I will tell you that they spend plenty of time looking, viewing, uh, TikToking, Instagramming. Um, and, you know, you're always trying to have these conversations. One, one thing that I find interesting about this is the idea that they're not actually using any technology to to make healthy ads. I mean, I'm, I'm never going to say you shouldn't be able to, you know, make money or have ads, but it's, it's the healthy ads. Are there no restrictions on the types of ads that teens can be served on social media? Well, they claim they keep trying to do it. And they also remember, it's not just ads. They also get linked up counts, which sometimes are paid things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And there really isn't much. It's on the social media companies to decide. And that's one of the problems. It's part of why you see Democrats, Republicans, everyone saying we need some rules. And I have introduced, I think, probably nearly 20 bipartisan bills in this area uh, because so what what do we need to have happen? Um, I think that one really young kids shouldn't even be on these platforms and you should be able to monitor that. And these companies uh, certainly have the ability to have people register and figure out um, whether or not someone should be on the platform. Um, Number And so you need to upgrade some of our laws about what kids can see and not see. And there are some existing laws in place that haven't been changed for decades. Number two, um, we should have privacy, a federal privacy law. Most developed nations have those. We um, should be able to, people should be able to protect their data. You know how much Facebook makes off you boys? 51, oh, a lot. Bucks, 51 bucks a quarter, just when you don't know what's happening because yeah. they know what your data is. So then they get paid to put ads up targeting you. Other countries, it's much less because they protect people's data. You should be able to protect your own data. Um, the next thing would be these algorithms. One of the shocking things we found out, I guess maybe it's not shocking. So you put a post up on Facebook. (laughs) Well, they changed them a few years ago. So if someone puts an angry emoji or one of their emojis in response to that, your post gets five times attraction as when someone puts a like, just a thumbs up. Oh, yeah. How do you like that? So you wonder why the most partisan political speech, the most angry stuff gets more traction. Part of it is these algorithms that are not in our control. So we want more transparency on that outside researchers to be able to look at the algorithm so we can figure out what we should do about that. Looking at should they continue to be immune from any kind of legal action? This is something that's um, we've looked at, should there be exceptions for that? They're just completely immune, unlike other entities out there. And then the final thing is a lot of work I've done in competition policy. We'll never know if Instagram might've been able to develop bells and whistles to protect privacy and stop misinformation and, and make sure kids aren't seeing bad stuff. We won't know because Facebook bought them. And in the words of Mark Zuckerberg, these were his words they discovered in an email, I'd rather buy than compete. That is not American capitalism. We want to have competition. And what the big dominant platforms can do is buy up everyone in sight 
and then you never develop the competition to maybe offer some bells and whistles to parents or to anyone uh, that would be a better alternative. And so that's all of this is in the mix right now in Congress. And as I said the other day, I think we've had a we need a little less talk and a lot more action. That's a Toby I've, Keith song. I've, I've heard that somewhere before. Um, yeah. Last question on the social media. This would be across platforms, even for foreign owned platforms like TikTok. Yes. Is that true? Good point. That's one of their points is, oh, this will, you know, somehow hurt. Of course, it would apply to TikTok. It would apply to any platform. One of the problems is if we just say, oh, we trust you and you do it yourself. Well, then we don't have that. And I think that's why. um, And and the other piece that we can talk about another day, but it's the fact that like uh, Amazon and Google, we've really learned to rely on them, especially during the pandemic. They offer great services. We know that. But one thing that they should stop doing is that they keep putting their own products on top of other ones. So they control the platform and they do that. Yep. So one of the things that Senator Grassley and I and Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin, I think Samantha B called it the Ocean's Eleven of co-sponsors. It goes from um, Cory Booker to Josh Hawley on the bill. But what we're trying, what we're saying here is you shouldn't be able to put your own stuff at, at the top. And you shouldn't be able to copy the products. This is Wall Street Journal reported this. Of other people, get this, they copy the products and then they make them themselves and then they put their product over the one they copied at the top of the search. So all of this is just getting it to me, preserving capitalism. And it's why we have, it's such a bipartisan effort. Got it. Um, You talk about bipartisanship on this issue. Obviously people read a lot of headlines you and I talk privately. We talk about other bipartisan things. Obviously, there's a lot of negotiations going on and negotiations will continue. Fast forward to after the new year. Congress is there. There's a fresh look during even an election year. What are the bipartisan pieces that need to move after these big pieces of legislation? Exactly. get Exactly. So um, I'd say the first thing is implementing these. And that does take oversight, right? It is that infrastructure funding that's so important, the broadband and the high-speed internet in Minnesota, the roads and bridges and rail, and all of that's going to start coming down the pike. So we want to make sure it gets out that the high-speed internet's actually getting built, especially in some of our rural areas. So that is, that's a major thing. Okay. Um, the second is what we need to work on more in my mind is some of these competition policies and getting this done. The third is supply chain. And there's been work done on this in terms of, and you know, a lot of this was a pandemic. It kind of blew up the way things were working. We all knew that, know that. Um, But it is making sure that yes, that our ports are working, that things are getting on trains, um, but also the workforce. And to me, there's a few answers for that. Um, One is, you know, getting people, um, making sure they're going back to work. And that can mean everything from good wages, which is happening right now, by the way, to um, making sure that you've got child care for people, something that we're working on right now, the bill we're debating um, is about that and helping people. I just still remember going to Marshall. And that was the number one request of the Chamber of Commerce was that we figure out how to get 
more childcare. So there's deserts in rural areas as well as problems in the metro. Um, the third thing um, is apprenticeships and getting kids into jobs that are high paying where we actually have openings and working with our education system to make sure that happens. And the final is some immigration reform, especially in the tourism and ag areas. And we're seeing if we can do some of this here at the end of the year to get some more work permits. Yep. Um, and uh, if we can do that, that would be great. But if it's something we have to continue working on into the coming year, um, it's a good time to work on it. So there's all of that in addition to, you know, um, everything from working with the rest of the world, a potential looking at European trade agreements, some of these other things. And all of this is aimed at after we've gotten through this pandemic and we're not quite through it yet in Minnesota, but I think we see as the Duluth mayor says, the lighthouse on the horizon. Um, um, we need to look at how we can move forward with our economy. And there's there's a lot of things that have been, I would say, waiting action because of the fact that we've been struggling and dealing with the pandemic. Sounds and that's for sense. the rest of the world too, I'll say. The rest of the world, same thing. Yeah, no, I know. I think I think that's what this these latest variants have taught us is that if the rest of the world doesn't take care of this too, or we don't help them do it, then it's not taken care of. And and on that front, so much of that's private sector now, which is great, but it is keeping developing those, although our U.S. government is taking a huge lead in, you know, distributing more vaccines than any other country in the combined in the world. Um, and so that has to keep going. But the, the the science and the developing the medication, these new pills that are in the works now uh, that would make it so that COVID is not so lethal for so many people so they don't die even if they get sick. Yep. Um, and just continuing to get the vaccine out and get that medication out is really a lot of it because we've learned we can't just bury our head in the sand in our country that you know, something's going to happen. I always think about this. Like I, I, call, I would get a call from a school group. This actually happened whose kids, the, the parents or their kids were on some sports trip in Guatemala and there was a mudslide or, you know, someone's trying to adopt a child from another country and um, they put in some draconian measures and they're stuck over there or, you know, the rest, we can't close ourselves out from the rest of the world. Our, we, we saw what that was like when we were wanting to go back and forth with Canada and we right. finally opened the borders now, but that people wouldn't think that created problems. It created a lot of problems, especially for Northern Minnesota. So that's my point. We are integrated in the rest of the world, even though we want to make our stuff in America and we do, and we are proud of that and we need to do more of it. We still do business with the rest of the world. And so making sure that we bring COVID down, not just in America, but in other countries as well. And we work with them and find the least expensive ways to do that from everything from getting the vaccines more mass produced to doing more on these medications that'll help if people get COVID. Um, That's going to help our whole economy um, of our country. Sounds great. My guest has been Senator Amy Klobuchar. You've been listening to the Sunday Take on Newstalk 830 WCCO. Talk to you next week. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 